following sermon, entitled The Law as Our Schoolmaster, was preached on the evening of July 10th, 2022, at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. If you enjoy listening to our sermons, we encourage you to come worship with us. For more information on upcoming service times and Bible study opportunities, please visit our website at hopeprc.org. This evening we turn again to the Heidelberg Catechism. It's not our normal practice to have two catechism sermons in one Lord's Day, but this is a preparatory service with a view to partaking of the Lord's Supper next week. And Lord's Day 2 works very well for preparatory service, whereas the next sermon in our series on the book of Ephesians works, will work quite well as an applicatory sermon. So that's the reason for two catechism sermons in one Lord's Day. Consider Lord's Day 2, and in connection with that, we read Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. We will read the whole of the chapter. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Have ye suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit, and worketh miracles among you, doeth he by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the Gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then, they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might be come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth it or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was added 430 years after, cannot disannul, that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then, 
And really that word serveth should not be there. Wherefore then the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. It was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the Scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye all are the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Thus far we read God's Word. It's on the basis of Galatians 3 and many other passages that we have the instruction of Lord's Day 2 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 2. Whence knowest thou thy misery? Out of the law of God. What doth the law of God require of us? Christ teaches us that briefly, Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Canst thou keep all these things perfectly? In no wise, for I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Lord's Day 1 of the Heidelberg Catechism taught us that there are three things we need to know in order to live and die happily. And the first thing mentioned is that we must know how great our sin and misery is. Well, insofar as one is convinced that he does need to know the greatness of his sin and misery, or at least is willing to entertain the idea that this is necessary knowledge in order to live and die happily, that leads him to a rather obvious question. Where do I get this knowledge from? How can I come to know the greatness of my sin and misery? And that is indeed the very next question that comes in the Heidelberg Catechism. Question 3 asks, Whence knowest thou thy misery? And the answer, out of the law of God. And in giving that answer, the Catechism thereby introduces the law of God and brings that to our attention this evening. 
This is one of two places that the catechism treats the law of God. It will circle back to it in the third section and really focus on it there as it talks about the law as the rule for a life of gratitude. But though that's the main treatment, we have a treatment of the law of God already here in the first section regarding our sin and misery. And for the catechism to treat the law of God in both places reflects the fact that the catechism is really an accurate reflection of the Reformed tradition. Because a part of the Reformed tradition is that it generally recognizes three uses of the law of God, three functions of the law of God. First, to show us our sin and thus our need for Christ. Second, as a foundation, as a template for the civil laws of a society that sin might be restrained. And third, as a rule, as a guide for a life of thankful conduct. The catechism treats the first and the third. And this morning, this evening, we focus on that first use of the law. That's the focus of the entire sermon. How the law shows us our sin and thus shows us our need for Christ. And this is what we call in Reformed theology the pedagogical use of the law. The pedagogical use from the law. And that word pedagogical comes from a Greek term that is a a compound of two different Greek words. One being the word for a youth, for a boy, and the other the verb to lead, to guide. So that the idea of a pedagogue is one who attends upon a youth, upon a boy, with a view to leading him. And we make mention of that because that's the word that's used in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 says, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster. The law was our pedagogue. And that it teaches us our need for Christ. And that's the truth we want to stand, we want to focus on this evening. How the law does indeed serve the gospel in that way. So the theme for this evening's sermon is the law as our schoolmaster or the law as our pedagogue. First, we'll look at the condemning law. Second, we'll look at the saving purpose. And third, the needed reminder. The law is our schoolmaster. The condemning law, the saving purpose, and the needed reminder. Catechism teaches us that we come to know our sin and misery out of the law of God and thereby introduces the whole concept, the whole topic of the law of God. And it's worth noting that the law in view here in question and answer to is what we call the moral law of our God. And that's evident from question and answer 4. Question and answer 4 says, what doth the law of God require of us and then it gives the, the summary of the law as it's found in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, the calling to love God and to love the neighbor. God's law calls us to love Him, that is, to acknowledge Him as God alone, to serve, worship, and obey Him as God, and to be devoted to Him in the whole of our lives. So much so that we would rather deny ourselves, give up every earthly good 
rather than offend Him in the least. That's what it means to love God. The law also calls us to love the neighbor. That is, to desire the good of the neighbor and to to perform the good of the neighbor. To treat the neighbor as we would have them treat us. That's the summary of the law. And it is indeed exactly that. A summary. This is a summary of what we call the moral law. That is, the Ten Commandments. So that when Jesus instructs us that God's law calls us to love Him, to love the neighbor, we recognize that the Ten Commandments represent ten different ways in which we are to love God and to love the neighbor. These are not two different laws. Love God and love the neighbor. And then the Ten Commandments. But they both represent the moral law. And that's what's in view here. It's also worth noting that this moral law has been around ever since the very beginning of time. We might be tempted to think that the law came about when it was given at Mount Sinai to the people of Israel. But that would be a wrong understanding. And we say that in light of such passages as Romans 2, verses 14 and 15, which talk about the Gentiles who do not have the Ten Commandments being a law unto themselves. And it goes on to speak of them showing the, the works of the law written on their heart. And the idea is they have an understanding of right and wrong. That is, the moral law is built into man, if you will. And that means when Galatians 3 talks about the law being added, it's not saying that the law existed for the first time when it was given at Mount Sinai. But it's talking about the writing down of that law, that moral law, what we call the the codifying of the law, as well as the addition of those other aspects of the law of God, namely the civil and ceremonial aspects of the law given to Israel, which were specific applications of the moral law to the life of Israel as a nation. So we're talking about the moral law. That law of our God communicates to us two main things. First, the moral law communicates God's standard. His standard for right and wrong. That's really the whole point. That's really the whole idea of a law. It's setting up the the measuring stick. If you want to be right with God, you must measure up, you must meet this exact standard and do so perfectly. And when God gives us this standard of right and wrong, He did not have to invent these laws. He did not have to come up with them at random. But rather, these laws are a reflection of His own character. Really, the law of God reveals our God to us. And in doing so, it reveals to us God's standard of perfect righteousness. That first of all is what the law communicates. Second, the law communicates to us the reward for obedience and the punishment for disobedience. To put it simply, the law says this to us. Do this and live. Fail to do this and you will die. 
And that comes out from the language that we read in Galatians chapter 3. In Galatians 3, verses 10 and 12, verse 12 gives the positive. Verse 12, the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. That is, if it were possible, it's not, but if it were possible for a man to keep the law of God perfectly, he would be given life for his obedience. Do this and live, says the law. But then from a negative point of view, it says, fail to do this and you shall die. And that's verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. That is, if you fall short ever so slightly from God's standard, if you fail to keep it for even a moment, then you've broken the law and you become the object of God's curse. The language is, cursed is everyone that continueth not. That is, does it all times. And it says, in all things, in every aspect of the law of God. And the punishment for one who does not keep the law perfectly is that he becomes the object of God's curse. His curse. God's curse is the word of His wrath. It is the exact opposite of His blessing. So that in order to understand the idea of God's curse, perhaps an easy way to think about it is to view it in contrast to the Aaronitic blessing that's one of the benedictions that's sometimes announced at the very end of the worship service when the the minister raises his hands and says, the Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make His face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up His countenance upon thee and give thee peace. That's God's blessing. And that means God's curse is the exact opposite. It would be for God to say through the minister to the congregation, the Lord curse thee and push you away. The Lord set His face against you and judge you. The Lord make His countenance black upon you and give you agony. That is God's curse. And the second thing that the law of God communicates to us after communicating the standard is the reward for obedience and the punishment for disobedience, namely God's curse. And that's the message that comes to every one of us. God's law addresses all of mankind. It addresses even those who do not have the Ten Commandments, who do not hear them read to them, who do not have a Bible to read them out of. Because as we noted a moment ago, the law of God has been built into man as it were, so that every man has a sense of right and wrong. Every man has a conscience that either excuses him or accuses him in the case of wrongdoing. And that's the reason why even the ungodly, even the wicked, recognize that it's wrong to murder. They recognize that it's wrong to be unfaithful to one's spouse, that it's wrong to steal, that it's wrong to lie. Man knows what the law tells him. 
So God's law does indeed address them, even if they do not have the Ten Commandments. But when we have the Ten Commandments read to us or written down for us, then it only communicates the message all the more loudly, all the more clearly, so that in the light of the law of God, we are see our sin more clearly and more fully. And that is indeed the teaching of Scripture. That the law has that function. That's evident from verse 19 here. Galatians 3, verse 19. Wherefore then, and again that word serveth, put in italics, would be better left out. Wherefore then, the law. It was added because of transgression. That is, it was added to show us our transgression all the more clearly. This is teaching the same thing as what we learn in Romans 5, verse 20, where we read, Moreover, the law entered that offense might abound. That is, the law causes offense to abound subjectively. We see the, the offensiveness of our sin all the more clearly in the light of God's law. And we all recognize how important this is. Exactly because man is ever trying to quiet his conscience. He tries to suppress those accusations that come from it. Thus, God gave His law to make clear that we are indeed sinners to cause offense to abound, to show us our transgressions. And it's in that way that the law thereby makes known our misery. Our misery. That's the wording of question answer three. Whence knowest thou thy misery? And the law communicates our misery through those two different aspects of the message so that our misery is likewise twofold. The law communicates God's standard and then it proclaims the punishment for disobedience. And those two aspects of the message of the law then lead us to the two aspects of our misery. So that first of all, our misery is that we are sinners. For the law tells us the standard. You must love God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. And you must love the neighbor as yourself. And the unavoidable conclusion if we are being honest with ourselves is that we do not measure up to that standard. So that the law shows us very clearly you and I are sinners. And that's the conclusion we are meant to draw. Galatians 3, verse 22, but the Scripture hath concluded all under sin. That is, we're all sinners. And that's the conclusion that the Heidelberg Catechism draws from this. Whence knowest thou thy misery? Out of the law of God. What does the law of God tell us? Love God and love the neighbor. What's the conclusion? Question answer five. Canst thou keep all these things perfectly? In no wise. For I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. I am a sinner. That's what the law shows us. The law is like a mirror that enables us to see ourselves accurately, to see ourselves as God Himself sees us. And rather than showing who is the fairest of all, when I look into that mirror, it shows me I am the ugliest of them all. 
That's what the law teaches us. And it thereby shows us, it teaches us our misery. I am a depraved sinner. Alienated from God. That's, first of all, my misery. But now the law does more than communicate God's standard. It also communicates the punishment for disobedience. And that brings us to the second aspect of our misery. Namely that on account of my sin, I stand exposed to the eternal wrath of God. See, the logic is really quite simple. The law says, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. My conscience then testifies, well, I have not continued in all things which are written in the law of God to do them. And therefore, I deserve God's curse. I stand condemned before this God. I'm exposed to eternal punishment on account of my sin. And the law will not let us forget that. The law keeps pressing that truth upon us. And it it keeps us locked up in a prison cell, as it were, with the knowledge of the fact that we deserve death. And I speak that way of a a prison cell in light of the the language that's found here in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, verse 23, now we read this, but before faith came, we were kept under the law. And that word kept is the word that's used for the the keeping, the guarding of a, a prisoner by some warden. And that's how the law functions. It reminds us of our sinfulness. It keeps us from fooling ourselves. It keeps us from ever thinking, I'm a pretty good person, you know. For every time we hear the law, it proclaims loudly and clearly, you have not continued in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Therefore, you are the object of God's curse. You deserve eternal punishment. It keeps us in that prison cell. And as the catechism will go on to show us in the subsequent Lord's Days, there's no way of escape in and of ourselves. That is what the law teaches us. That's the conclusion we must draw. And beloved congregation, it's absolutely essential that we do indeed reach that conclusion. Because in order to live and die happily, we must know how great is our sin and misery. Because it's only when by faith we reach that exact conclusion that we recognize the need for salvation outside of ourselves. It's only when we come to this conclusion that we then look to Christ. And that is indeed God's saving purpose. His saving purpose in giving us the law. You see, the law serves the Gospel in the hearts and lives of God's elect people. Yes, the law and Gospel set forth two 
opposite messages. So that the law says, do this and live. Fail to do this and you will die. Whereas the Gospel says, Christ has done it for you. And because His righteousness is imputed to you by faith, you now have the right to eternal life on the basis of His work. Those are two exact opposite messages. But but although those are opposite messages, that does not mean that the law and the Gospel are somehow opposed to each other. It does not mean that the, the law is against the Gospel. That's the explicit teaching of Galatians 3. Verse 22, is the law then against the promises of God? That is, against the, the promises of the Gospel. And the answer is, God forbid, absolutely not. But instead, the law serves the Gospel. And it serves the Gospel specifically by functioning as a schoolmaster, as a pedagogue. And here we come to the verse that we mentioned in the introduction, verse 24. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster, our pedagogue, to bring us unto Christ. In the Greco-Roman world in which the Apostle Paul lived, the wealthy would hire schoolmaster pedagogues for their children. These pedagogues did not function as a sort of private tutor. That is, the primary purpose of these Individuals was not to give instruction or to teach, but rather the purpose of one of these schoolmasters was to lead the youth in the right direction. Remember, we said that the the literal idea of a pedagogue is that he attends upon a youth with a view to leading him. That is, a pedagogue, a pedagogue made sure that the youth did not depart down a wrong path, but it stayed on the right path. Kept the the child on task, as it were. And when the child begins to depart, when he, he goes astray, the pedagogue was there with a rod to discipline that child. Now more specifically, the schoolmaster, the pedagogue, was hired with a view to making sure the child went to school and did his schoolwork. That was the main thing that the pedagogue did. Because as the child walks about, if he's all by himself, he's going to see the other kids off playing, having fun. And he's going to be tempted to skip school for the day and go join the kids in all their fun and games. And thus, wealthy parents would hire a pedagogue, a schoolmaster, to to follow that child. To say, no, you may not go play with them. You need an education. You must go to school. You must learn your lesson. And when he's at school, he, he's keeping an eye on him, making sure he's doing his schoolwork. That's the idea of a pedagogue, of a schoolmaster. And now the Spirit, by inspiration, takes that idea and teaches us that the law functions in a similar way. Only the law does not drive us to school. It leads us to Christ. Verse 24, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. It points out our need for Him. It leads us to Him again and again so that we we stay focused on Him. That we're not distracted with this false doctrine so that we don't go down this path of sin. So we keep our eyes fixed on our Savior. 
That's how the law serves the Gospel. And the law did this especially for the Old Testament Israelites. That is indeed what this passage is talking about first and foremost. The the application for Old Testament Israel. And I say that in light of the language of verses 23-25. through Verse 23 we read, but before faith came. And the idea there is not before we were saved by faith, but before the object of our faith came. That is, before Christ came into this world. Was made of a woman. Made under the law. Before He came, we were kept under the law. Shut up under the faith, which was should be revealed afterwards. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster. It puts it in the past tense. And it's building towards verse 25, which says, but after that faith has come, that is, the object of our faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. And when we read that, that might be puzzling to us. Do we not need the law anymore? Does it not function in the same way? Well, the solution is that the primary application here is to the Old Testament Israelites and the fact that they were under not just the moral law, but that civil and ceremonial, those civil and ceremonial aspects of the law. Because if you want to talk about a schoolmaster that hounded you at every turn, kept you on task, then you need not look any further than the civil and ceremonial laws. They governed every aspect of the life of the Old Testament Israelites down to the smallest of details. They prescribed what you could and could not wear. What you could and could not eat. The law functioned as a schoolmaster to show them in every aspect of their lives their own sinfulness and thus to drive them, to lead them to Jesus Christ. But now that Christ has come, that is the object of our faith has come, those civil and ceremonial aspects of the law fall away. And that's why we have the language that we do in verse 25. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. No no longer under those civil and ceremonial aspects of the law. But now though the application is first and foremost for Old Testament Israel, that is not to say there's no application for us. Because the law still does function in this way. It just does it in a slightly different way. It does it without those civil and ceremonial laws. It does it through the moral law, which though not as specific, is no less restrictive. And that moral law comes to us and says, if you want to be right with God, if you want eternal life on the basis of your own law-keeping, you must love Him with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. And you must love the neighbor as yourself. And by setting forth that standard, the law makes clear you have not kept it. You are therefore the object of God's curse. You stand condemned before Him. 
And in that way, the law reminds us again of our need for Jesus Christ. The law serves the Gospel. Now before we move on, let's allow the law to do exactly what it's supposed to do. Lead us to Christ. That is, let's take a moment to focus on the One to whom the law leads us. And why we need Him. The law drives us, first of all, to the One who has redeemed us from the curse. That's the language of verse 13. Galatians 3, verse 13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. The good news of the Gospel that the law reminds us of our need of is that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. That is, He's liberated us. He's set us free so that whereas before we stood condemned, we were locked up in that prison cell awaiting further condemnation, awaiting the the curse of God to be unleashed upon us, Christ has redeemed us. He's opened wide the the prison door. He's, He's pulled us out of prison. He set us free. And He did that by paying the greatest imaginable cost. And that He Himself was made a curse for us. Galatians 3, verse 13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. That is, He took upon Himself our sin, our guilt. To use the language of 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, for He hath made Him, Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin. That is, our idolatry of heart was placed upon Him. Our bitterness and resentment against the neighbor was laid upon His shoulders. Our resentment of God's will for our life at times, that too was put upon Christ. And so also were the the hateful and hurtful words that have come out of our mouths about others. It was all heaped upon Him. He was made sin. He became a curse for us. And that's astounding because, we're who, because of who we are talking about. We're talking about the sinless One. We're talking about the One who never once deviated from God's law. Who never once fell short of that standard. Yet all of our sins were placed upon Him. So that when God looked upon Him to render a verdict, guilty or innocent, the verdict was guilty. Not because of His own sin, but because of ours and because of the fact that all of the sins of all of God's elect people were put upon one man. From a legal point of view, there was no greater sinner than Jesus Christ. He was made a curse for us. 
And that means not only that all of our sins were placed upon Him, it means He had to endure the curse. He had to go and die an accursed death. That's why He has to die on a cross and not some other death. And it was there on the cross that He endured God's curse. And let's think about what that means for a moment. It means the eternally blessed One who was ever the object of God's favor. The One who knew the light of God's countenance shining upon Him. Endured instead the curse. That is, for three hours as He hung there on the cross, God's Word was this. The Lord curse you and push you away. The Lord set His face against you and judge you. The Lord caused the blackness of His face to come upon you and give you agony. He became a curse for us. And it's the law of God that drives us to Him. That says you need Him. Because otherwise that curse comes upon you. The law of God points us to Christ and says look for deliverance from the curse in Him and in Him alone. That's how the law serves the Gospel. That's how it functions as a a schoolmaster, as a pedagogue. It drives us to the One who first of all redeemed us from the curse. And it drives us to the One who secondly lived a life of perfect obedience on our behalf. That is, it drives us to the only One who loved God with His whole heart, with His whole mind, with His whole strength. At every moment of His life, Jesus acknowledged Him as God alone. At every moment of His life, Jesus Christ obeyed Him, worshipped Him, and served Him. He was entirely devoted to Him. So much so that He was willing to deny Himself to give up every earthly good rather than offend His God in the least. Christ is the only One about whom it can be said, He did continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. And in that way, He earned for us eternal life. The law says, do this and live. And Christ did it all. And thereby procured eternal life for His people. And it's the law of God that reminds us of our need for Him. Because the law of God reminds us you do not have that obedience in and of yourself that will measure up. You have no basis for standing before God and being right with Him. You need the righteousness of another. You need a perfect life of obedience to be imputed to your account. And it's found only in Christ. 
So look to Him. Believe Him. Trust Him. Embrace Him as your Savior. So that you might be justified on the basis of His saving work. It's in that way that the law is our schoolmaster. And thus we can be thankful for the law. It's when we understand this that we will not be tempted to discard the law, to throw out the law of our God because the reality is that we need this reminder again and again. We conclude with a needed reminder. We need to be reminded of this first of all because of our tendency to measure ourselves in comparison to others. That is, rather than looking to the right standard, how do we measure up compared to God's law and His standard of His righteousness, we foolishly decide that we're going to compare ourselves to others and see how we measure up to others and base our righteousness on that. And what we conclude is that, well, I am not like that lazy bum out there. I'm not like that guy who desecrates the Sabbath every week. And therefore, I must be a pretty good person, at least relatively. And the implied conclusion, therefore, is that while I may need Christ, those people sure need Him a lot worse than I do. Thus, we need a reminder of our need for Christ. We need that reminder secondly because of our tendency to minimize sin. To minimize sin. So that with certain sins, though we may acknowledge, yeah, I probably should not do this thing or that thing, nevertheless, we'd be very reluctant to call it sin. We minimize sin so that from our perspective, it's not that big of a deal. Why are you making an issue of this? Is it really that big of a deal that I, I watch programs that take God's name in vain? Is it really that big of a deal that, that I get angry at times and yell at my spouse and my children? We tend to minimize sin and thus tolerate it in our hearts and lives so that we allow for what one author called respectable sins to be a part of our lives. And insofar as we minimize our need, insofar as we minimize sin, we thereby minimize our sense of need for Jesus Christ. And thus we need the reminder. And we need that reminder third of all because of the fact that there are certain sins that we are altogether blind toward. The heart is deceitful. Sin has a way of hiding itself out of view so that there are certain sins we are blind to. They're a part of our lives, but we're totally ignorant of the fact that this or that aspect of our life is in fact sin against God. So that we fail to see the sinfulness of not working while at work even though there's work to be done. We fail to see the, the sinfulness of Spending all sorts of time with a flirtatious woman who is not your wife. 
And when we fail to see those things as sin, we fail to see our need for Christ. And thus, we need the reminder that the law of God provides us. Because when the law of God is set forth before us, it sets before us again the proper standard. It says, it does not matter how you compare to others. What matters is how you compare to this standard, God's own perfect righteousness. And thus it, it shows us our sins again. And then the law comes along and it, it keeps us from minimizing our sin because the law says, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. That is, even one small sin is enough to condemn you to death. How dare you minimize sin? And then the law comes and shines the light, as it were, on those sins to which we became blind. It helps us to see them. Sin seeks to hide in the deepest recess of our hearts and God's law comes like a bright light and says, I see you lurking in the shadows. And in all of those ways, therefore, the law reminds us, I need Christ. And thus we see how valuable the law is, how important it is. It's a good schoolmaster in that it points us to our Savior. And this in turn shows us the value of using God's law as a guide for examining ourselves with a view to partaking of the Lord's Supper next week Sunday morning. It is our practice, and it's a good practice, that before the Lord's Supper we have a preparatory service and that the week in between is a week of self-examination. And it's important that we give this self-examination more than just a lick and a promise. That can happen sometimes. So that the week goes by and we have done precious little examining of ourselves. What ought to be the case is that we, we take time doing this. In our devotions especially, we, we analyze our lives so that we might see our sinfulness and thus our need for Christ. And one method to use one way to go about this is very deliberately to take the law of God and use it as a measuring stick to hold our lives up to that standard so that as the week goes by, we consciously, deliberately look at our lives under the light of the law of God so that Monday through Friday, each day of the week, we take two of the commandments. We read them. Perhaps read the catechism's explanation of them. And then honestly and prayerfully assess our lives relative to that standard. That's a possible method. A good method for examining ourselves. And insofar as you do that this week, Insofar as we look at our lives in the light of God's law, I can assure you, child of God, you will come to the Lord's table with such eagerness 
next week Sunday morning. Because that law will make unmistakably clear. I am not worthy of myself to come to the table. Of myself, I have no right whatsoever to have fellowship with the holy and righteous God. And thus we will come eagerly looking to Christ and recognizing it's only because He is worthy that I may come. It's not because of my work. It's because of His work that I have a seat at the table, a right to sit down and eat that bread and drink that wine. It's only on the basis of His work that I can have and enjoy eternal life. That's what the law of God reminds us of. May God so use His law in the week to come. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank Thee for Thy law. Certainly, the law cannot save us. It has no power to do so. But we thank Thee for it nonetheless because it reminds us again and again of our need for Christ. It is a good schoolmaster to lead us to Him. And for that reason, we give Thee thanks. And we pray that the law may indeed function this way in our lives. Keep us from ever looking to the law as the basis for our own righteousness. But instead, may it simply serve the Gospel and lead us to the Gospel of Jesus Christ in whom alone is all of our righteousness and in whom alone is deliverance from the curse of the law that would otherwise come upon us. Hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.